This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today we welcome John Buttrick of Union Square Ventures and Sean Moran of eShares to discuss the cap table. For some time now, I've been researching cap tables and who would be best to talk about them and was pretty astonished when I came across eShares. This company has taken a tremendous amount of frustration and strain out of the process of managing ownership in private companies. And I was just really excited to see that they existed. And fortunately, after I was able to connect with the folks at eShares and one of the major investors in eShares, they agreed to come on the show and help demystify the cap table management process. I'm very excited to find a better way and also to have the foremost thinkers on the topic right here on the program today. In part one of the interview, we will cover questions including, can you start out with an overview of what a cap table is and what one can expect to see on most cap tables? Can you mention some of the common issues you come across when reviewing a cap table? Many of the cap tables that I review are at the seed stage and they're pretty simple. Why the need for an automated solution? What is a 409A valuation? What's the biggest value for investors of a clean and potentially automated cap table? And what's the biggest value for startups of a clean and automated solution? Those questions and more in part one of the interview today. Today, we welcome John Buttrick and Sean Moran. John is a partner at Union Square Ventures in New York City. And he manages Union Square Ventures Opportunity Fund and also focuses on earlier stage investments in the financial sector. And Sean Moran joins us from Mountain View, California. Sean is head of investor services at eShares. And previous to eShares, Sean worked in product at Circle Internet Financial and also worked in venture at Lightspeed Venture Partners. John and Sean, welcome to the program. Thanks, Thanks. for having us, Nick. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Absolutely. So, John, can you start us off by walking through your background and also how you became involved in venture capital? Sure. So, my primary graduate schooling was law school. To law school, and then after I graduated, I joined a, a large law firm in New York. Spent a few years in Paris, but I was focused primarily in New York, uh, which is where I grew up, and did mergers and acquisitions. I also did some formation work. A number of my clients were large private equity firms. And during my legal career, which was about 15 years, I had absolutely zero contact with venture. Uh, I couldn't have told you what a Series A round was uh, <laughs> if, it, if my life depended on it. And so in the late 90s, in the, in the go-go days of the late 90s, one of my clients, a small, small private equity firm that had a couple of partners, uh, asked me to join them. Uh, they were focused on 
buying back office software companies. They were backed by Thomas Lee and Blackstone. And while I was actually pretty happy, I thought this is sort of a, a, a really interesting opportunity for me. I've always been interested in business. And uh, so I joined as a third partner there. But these, these businesses that, that Livewire did, it was called Livewire, were sort of back office software companies. They, we, we did have an incubator that I guess today we, we would say it invested seed and maybe the equivalent of Series A in some startups around the mobile space, generally speaking. My two partners uh, ran a, 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 one of the small cellular telephone companies, New York Stock Exchange traded cellular companies called Price Cellular. And so we made investments around that ecosystem. And so I joined in early 2000 and spent about four years there. We sold our core companies pretty successfully. And after that, I started to be involved in a bunch of completely unrelated projects. And I got an introduction to a classified company, essentially competing with Craigslist in Europe, although the headquarters were in Union Square. So I started to consult for them. And that was really my first exposure to venture. And I also, I knew Brad, my partner Brad, and I started to get exposed to venture because he and Fred were raising in 2003 their first fund together. And I'm a small investor in the first fund. So that's my connection with USV. I then, one of my other projects, worked with my now partner, Albert, who was doing a separate venture, uh, something called Eckford Capital Investing in Transportation Software. And I advised them on forming their entity and also looking at investments. So Albert and I had a professional relationship. And he then joined Delicious, uh, which was a USV, one of USV's first companies. Uh, and then he joined USV. And then I talked to Brad and Fred and Albert, uh, probably starting in 2009, about starting a, a later stage fund. You know, they had made some very successful investments in 2006 in companies like Twitter and Zynga and Etsy. But we run relatively small fund sizes here. Uh, the 2004 fund was $125 million, and they were unable to follow on to their best investments. And so in 2010, I joined the firm uh, halftime when we formed the, the USV, the first USV Opportunity Fund, which is essentially a later stage fund. It's, it's a little bit more than that because it's, it, we do think of it as an opportunity fund. Uh, and we generally think of it as involving investments in companies with valuations north of $100 million that have less downside risk than our sort of core early stage funds. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I came into the venture space. And uh, then in 2012, I joined as a partner when we raised our 2012 fund. Albert joined when they raised the 2008 fund, and then I, I switched to full-time and joined as a partner in the 2012 fund along with Andy Weissman to make early-stage investments. So that's how I came to where I am today. It's quite a crew you got there. <laughs> Lots of the, uh, the thought leaders that I've been following for many years. Okay, and then, uh, Sean, on your side, can you walk us through your story, um, your path to eShares, and then also your role there? Absolutely. So I started my career at Ernst & Young, focusing on financial statement audits and then also working on some transaction analysis. Then I joined Lightspeed Venture Partners, as you mentioned. I, so I started there focused on uh, financial analysis. So existing investments 
looking at portfolio companies, how they're performing, where we should double down. And then later I had an opportunity to work on a fundraising there and then um, moved to the deal team as an associate. So I spent three years at Lightspeed. We invested into companies like Snapchat and Nest and Nutanix, Honest Company. So it was a really great experience. Then I left to go to business school at Wharton. And then most recently, uh, as you mentioned, was on the product team at Circle, which is a consumer Bitcoin company. At eShares, I lead the investor services team, which is focused on uh, portfolio management. And uh, we, we think it's the best place to track and manage your private assets. Uh, I started almost a year ago, and now I think our team is uh, about 10 or 11. We're pretty excited about what we're building. Very cool. And Sean, you know, we've discussed cap tables many times on the program in the past, but we've never really done a deep dive. So just to get everybody on the same page, can you start off with just an overview of what a cap table is and what one can expect to see on most cap tables? Yes. So a cap table actually is short for capitalization table. Uh, and that's the record of ownership in a company. So on the left, you have the, the list of stakeholders, typically, uh, or individuals or entities that old, hold securities in the company. Uh, across the top, you'd see classes of stock. So you'd see common stock, you know, Series A preferred stock, Series B options. Uh, you'd be able in the cap table itself to see both the outstanding ownership in the company and also on a fully diluted basis, which would take into account preferred stock on an as converted to common basis. Um, you'd see options issued, remaining in the pool, other convertible securities like warrants. And in some cap tables, you may not see this, but in, in every cap table, I think you should see price per share of each round. So then you'd be able to see either in separate columns or you could do the math easily, the dollars invested into the company. So truly how the company is capitalized, uh, it's, a, it's financing history. I wish price per share was on every cap table. <laughs> yeah, it, it really should be, I think. Otherwise, I don't think it's a true cap table, but um, it functions maybe closer to a, a ledger of securities issued, which uh, right, right. I think is a relic of that law firms have, have typically owned this process in the past for private companies. But I think a, a true cap table should have price per share of each round and the dollars invested into the company, not just equity, but, but debt, you know, is the true how the company is capitalized. But uh, typically for private companies, usually if you see a cap table, it's focused uh, primarily on equity. Very good. And then, John, I'm sure you've seen many cap tables as an investor. Can you mention some of the common issues you come across when reviewing a cap table? Yeah, well, I think the most interesting thing to think about initially, which is why eShares is different. I mean, I think everybody who listens to this podcast who has looked at a cap table has looked at an Excel spreadsheet. That is typically the way we uh, in historically have looked at, at cap tables. And those are sent by email. If you think about it, going back to, you know, I was a history major and there was always a distinction between primary sources and secondary sources. And primary sources were the actual source and secondary sources were sort of what we call in the legal world more hearsay. And an Excel spreadsheet is by definition hearsay. There are certificates that underlie it, but somebody, you know, tries to transcribe the information from the certificates and the documents to the cap table and things can get lost. So the, the major issue with cap tables is accuracy. And 
many cap tables are inaccurate. Um, that's just the way life is or has been. And they're also complicated because different, uh, you know, in the venture world, we focus primarily on preferred stock and different preferred stocks have different terms. You know, do they convert one to one? Is there a ratio? Has there been a split, et cetera, et cetera. The cool thing about eShares is it is a primary resource. It is a transfer agent. So when you pull a cap table of a company off eShares, you are getting a primary resource that you don't get anywhere else. And so I think it solves a huge problem. It also, you know, because it's cloud-based, that you're getting something that's 100% accurate at that time. Or eShares also has the capability to give you you know, in, in, in the case of today, we're, we're here in May of 2016. Let's say you wanted to see the cap table at the end of December 2015 for year-end financial statements. Just press a button and out comes the primary resource for that date. So it solves for those of us in the investment world who are looking for real accuracy, eShares provides that. Gosh, I really hope my portfolio companies are listening because <laughs> I wish they were on this. You know, That's speaking true. speaking of certs, I've never even seen a physical cert. Um, does eShares hold the stock certificates? So the answer to that is yes. And actually, it's uh, a bit more nuanced. So first, for the electronic certs, there there is no paper version that's valid anymore. When a company signs up for eShares, every shareholder signs a uh, a legal disclaimer when they sign up. That effectively says that the paper certificates have either been destroyed or they acknowledge they no longer hold any value. And so the electronic certificate or security uh, in the event that it's not a, a stock certificate, but a convertible note or, or a warrant, that is the, the only source of truth at that point. Just uh, as a small side note, we do also hold in custody for our investor, our paying investor customers, paper stock certificates uh, as they're trying to convince their companies to sign up, we, we, it functions as a bridge where uh, we'll hold them on paper until the company's ready to sign up, and then we'll, we'll move from there. But just to give you an example as a user, you know, I'm obviously invested in eShares. If I pull up my go on an eShares account and look at eShares cap table, I see a number of shares, but there's also a button to actually click on a PDF of a certificate. You know, one of the headaches of the back office world is that they often can't find the certificates. Yep. You know, Nick, yep. you've never seen one. Um, and so you have to do affidavits, you know, more paperwork, more headaches, and eShares solves that problem. So a lot of the cap tables I'm looking at, you know, first money in, second money in, they're pretty basic. Like you said, they're in an Excel document or a Google sheet. Sean, why the need for an automated solution? So I think first... You know, for anyone that thinks it's crazy that in 2016 you're managing any part of your life on paper, <laughs> we're there for you. You know, it, I think if you're doing it on paper uh, and then separately logging it into Excel, Google Sheets, you know, John's point stands. You have this double entry problem, which is just there, there's this tremendous potential for errors. So what we fundamentally do at an atomic level is, is we we bind together issuance and management into one step. So we we fundamentally are a transfer agent where we are responsible for, for issuing live securities. When you issue and manage in one step, uh, that means all the securities you issue become the single source of truth for the company. 
So all these problems before with managing spreadsheets that you get to with version control go away because there's just one database that contains all the items in the company's ledger over time, issuance, you know, transfers, any repurchases or terminations. And I think what you get and what our companies have seen, our customers have seen, um, is that when you do this electronically and the law firm's not uh, managing the process on paper anymore, first, you, you remove the chance for error. But second, you really should save uh, some money. So, you know, law firms are expensive, 500 bucks an hour to not just do all this work on paper, which takes more time, but then also reconcile uh, when you do encounter, you know, errors or, or issues. Uh, there, you know, there's one reconciliation process in Easters, which is just to get your current cap table live on the site, and then no more. I think the, the last point I'd make is just that when you have moved to a digital answer here, it's just like many other things where you move from analog to digital, where there's just a lot more power as a result and flexibility to model your next financing round, run a waterfall analysis, produce a 49A valuation. All of those things rely heavily on the company's cap table. And if you're managing it in a separate spreadsheet all the time, then that means you're constantly having to rejigger that spreadsheet for every new scenario you might want to look at versus it's just maintained in a clean database. And then you can make use of building on top of that, which is what we've started to do. Yeah. You know, speaking of 409A valuations, can you touch on what those are? Sure. So 409A is actually a section of the tax code. So the IRS essentially looked at all of the, uh, as John mentioned earlier, the, the go-go days where you know companies were, were issuing options, and you know it, they certainly were priced significantly lower in the '90s than than maybe what the options uh, should have been worth, and so the four uh, nine A valuations were brought in essentially to say you should be doing on you know, a yearly basis, really, because uh, these are, should only be valid. Uh, you only have coverage for up to 12 months. There's a safe harbor mark that you meet there. You should be refreshing the company's valuation every 12 months at a minimum, or maybe more often than that, if there's been a material financial event. And so this quickly turned into a racket where there would be these valuation shops that would just essentially only offer this service. And it would cost companies a lot of money to run the valuation. Mm -hmm. And so we saw that this, you know, this wasn't, I don't imagine the pitch to, to John and USV when uh, the company, when eShares started is we're going to turn into the world's valuation practice for 409A. I don't, I don't think that would be uh, a big enough market for, for Union Square. But I think this fit into the kinds of things that you could do more easily if you had a database that maintained company ownership. Because if you feed the company's cap table data and financial data from QuickBooks or Zero accounting directly into the valuation model, you could save a lot of time. You could do it for a lot less money. And, and that's what we've started to do. So I think we run the largest 49A practice now for private companies. And it starts at $25 a month for coverage. So one of the things startups are concerned about is, uh, am I actually covered? You know, can I uh, issue options to my employees at, at a price that you know, is defensible in audit? And so that's, that's where our evaluation team can help. 
This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So, John, in your estimation, what's the biggest value for investors of a uh, clean and potentially automated cap table? Well, I think uh, I talked about one of them, which is that, uh, which I think is the most important, which is that you're getting capitalization information from a primary source. So it's 100% reliable, which is a critical, critical element. Mm-hmm. And number two is you get consistency. Like I get a lot of cap tables. They're formatted in very different ways. And eShares has a very standard format that obviously will iterate on over time. But it's it's great for me because I know exactly what to expect. And I think anyone who spends a lot of time on cap tables uh, appreciates sort of a consistent approach because it's all over the lot right now. And the third thing is, you know, Sean has been talking about what I call the VC product, which is, you know, we'll show all of our investments in a particular fund on one screen or all of our funds on one screen. There's a lot of data analytics that you can do off that. And, you know, there's just no other way to do that uh, unless it's you've got a, a powerful cloud-based system. You, can, you, you I mean, you're a seed investor. I don't know how many investments you have, but, you know, h- how complicated is it for you to pull up, aggregate data and analyze it? It's not uh, possible. Yeah, it's a pain. It's, <laughs> a, it's not possible. You could hire an intern all summer to do some really basic things. And, you know, I think eShares is working on a product that's it's still sort of in internal phase, but it's a big focus for us and the team in 2016 that is going to make all of this a lot simpler. And the people we've talked to who run seed funds and VC funds look at this and go, you know, can I get this yesterday? So I think there's a lot of interesting things that an automated cap table, a cloud-based automated cap table can provide, I think we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, 
between my partner and I, we've got a little over 80 investments. And I couldn't imagine every quarter pinging all these founders for the updated equity breakdown. I mean, it's it's just not possible. I mean, there's there's no way that I could I could get access to this information. So if I had a group of LPs invested in a fund, I don't even know how I could generate the reports without some sort of automation on uh, on the cap table. Yeah, Nick, let's talk. I, I didn't realize you you're that prolific. Uh, <laughs> you know, Eighty investments. You you really need a solution. So we, we have this we have the same last name. You know, no relation, but I'll still give you a family discount. <laughs> And, you know, there are other parts of it. I mean, Nick, I don't know if you have audited financial statements, but, you know, our analysts and every analyst and every VC firm and private equity firm, this is not, we're starting in VCs, but I expect to go much broader than that over time. You know, there's this huge year-end process where just as you say, you've got to find, get the most recent cap table at the end of the year. You've got to collect all the documentation relating to each investment. It's very, very cumbersome. What if you had all your 80 companies on eShares and for each investment, there was the documentation for that investment and the cap table was up to date and you just gave your auditor read access to that information. You wouldn't have to set up any more drop boxes or whatever process you, you use in particular if you have audited financial statements. I mean, it's just a game changer, I think, um, in terms of back office processes for for funds. And it's not limited to VC funds. It's, you know, there's uh, private equity funds, there's real estate, there's oil and gas. I mean, there are tremendous opportunities here, you know, in, in capital formation aggregation, I guess is, are the words I would use for that. So in my own self-interest, of course, I want to hear the investor perspective on this. But uh, Sean, can you give us a little bit of the startup's perspective and why that clean automated solution on the cap table is it's going to be much more helpful for them. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think John uh, said it just right, but uh, let me, let me echo what he said, but also add, I think one of the first calculations a company might do in mental math is just, uh, and obviously our sales team can help is uh, lower legal bills to start. You know, they, it, it's, you're not managing this process on paper and dealing with a reconciliation anymore. And so that should save, you know, the, the $500 an hour, that, that adds up quickly. So that, that'll be the first thing. It, it'll pay for itself just in, in, uh, in that alone. And then, you know, as John mentioned, there's a, a variety of, of powerful things you get as a result. Just all the different views into the cap table and making that available to your investors can save you a lot of time. You know, as an example, if you have an investor on your cap table, they're pinging you every quarter or, or whenever they want access to this information and most updated cap table. If you're on eShares, they ping you once for you to grant them access. And then they always have access. You grant the permission level that makes sense, but then they can come in and download it and do all the modeling they want whenever they'd like. You don't have to get pinged again on it. Is it possible for the founder to model out their return based on potential subsequent financing rounds, exit prices, uh, things of that nature to see, you know, how dilution may affect them down the road or how maybe a late stage ratchet could affect their position? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we issue securities, when, when a company actually issues securities, we capture all of the economic data associated with each share class uh, or e- each instrument. And so each security itself so we have these two models that may be relevant 
to do the kind of analysis you're talking about, Nick. So one is the next round model. When you're uh, anticipating your next financing round, you click a button and you have a full model built on top of your cap table uh, you know, in, in an instant. Uh, and you can immediately start tweaking assumptions on what the you know, valuation would be on the next round and what kind of participation might you see from existing investors or from new investors coming into the round. Maybe you're, you're doing a refresh of the option pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, or note holders, you know, are converting into the round. All of that gets calculated for you. So you just plug in a couple assumptions and then you can see the resulting dilution effect on your ownership as a founder or uh, as an investor, you can use the same tool. The other analysis that may be relevant is the waterfall analysis or the, uh, you know, what would an exit scenario look like for the company? Yep. Be- because we captured the preference data, the liquidation preference data on each share class, the the waterfall analysis connects the preference stack to the cap table. And so you can see the funds flow projected for each share class, you know, whether they convert to common in an exit or clear preferences, and then also to each individual shareholder if you have that level of access. Unreal. I got to get a demo of this because <laughs> I was just going to ask you that question. I'm glad you covered it. So you also touched on this option pool. And uh, John, I've heard from many founders that are getting caught up in the option pool shuffle, so to speak. Can you describe what that is and if eShare Solution has an easy way to allocate the option pool to either pre or post money? Awesome material from John and Sean in part one of the interview. In part two on the cap table, we will address questions including... I've heard of many founders that get caught up in the option pool shuffle. Can you describe what it is? And if eShare Solution has an easy way to allocate the option pool to pre or post money. I want to talk a little about employee equity. This has been an important topic of discussion on a number of different levels. How does eShares affect employee equity? Some view the market for eShares as too small. What's your response to them? I have heard that eShares struggled to raise capital. Was this the case? And how have you found the process? What was the Union Square Ventures investment thesis on investing in eShares? Does eShares expand beyond Silicon Valley? If so, how and what drives the future growth? Is there a data play here as well? It seems that many companies are trying to understand and aggregate the very data that eShares will own. How are you thinking about the data angle? And we'll wrap up part two of the interview with final thoughts on cap tables and what early stage companies should consider as they are raising money. Until then, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time.